0: I honestly think that if people had financial literacy education we'd have a lot less debt we'd have a lot more happy people we'd have a lot more successful people moving the needle up in their lives i mean some of this stuff is just like if i knew when i was 14 that i can put 20 dollars into an s p 500 fund and it wouldn't like and it would be fine i i would be a lot wealthier today forgetting about everything else
1: Welcome back to Shelf Life Podcast. Thank you all again so much for joining us this week. As we have such an informative and fascinating episode lined up for you today, I am extremely excited to welcome on a guest that is so accomplished in so many different fields of her life. Primarily, she's worked over a decade in finance, helping families mitigate through the complex struggles of finance and investing. She has this amazing skill for making some of the most complex convos around money seem just a little too easy. She's a powerful woman. Not only is she a CFP, which is a certified financial planner, but she also has time to have skills in serving others, whether it's being a certified yoga instructor, a certified life coach, a certified transformational life coach, and the author of a series of books called Money Matters. But most importantly, in my opinion, she's a speaker, a teacher, and influencer on the importance of financial literacy, especially to the young people in our lives. Without further ado, let's welcome Veronica Caras.
0: you thank you so much Luciana so I'm so grateful and blessed to be here and really really excited to be here with you so thank you for having me
1: I appreciate it now I know this is not going to be a question right now off of the book but I know you're just off coming off of the eve of Tony Robbins event right I've watched your Facebook (laughs) and I'm sure that's gotten you a lot of energy that was uh, what
0: event was that again? For the It was Date with Destiny. Uh, so it's annual Date with Destiny. It's my third one, three years in a row. Um, this time, I I had the privilege to serve as a senior leader. So it was my first senior leader event, and absolutely amazing is the date was
1: this is the date with destiny the one that he was able to film and create like i'm not your guru on netflix
0: yeah yeah so i am oh. not your guru is a date with destiny event yes
1: holy moly yeah, that's a big one i love i can I need to go to one of those and I would love to see you
0: there one time. <laughs> I highly recommend it. You know, it's magical. It's really like, so you've been, and as we were just talking, you've been to Unleash the Power Within. And so the way I always say it is like, Unleash the Power Within is sort of like the kick out the door and Date with Destiny is what you, figuring out what you do once you get out there, right? It's, it's the everything else at a much, much deeper level. Other people have said like UPW is something like kindergarten or Date with Destiny is University. I don't quite see it that way. I think they're really different because Unleash the Power Within has always been for me, like just the rude awakening, so to speak. And some people, you know, who are asleep, walking around asleep at the wheel of life, UPW will wake you up. Date with Destiny gets you to dive deep and figure out how you create the person you actually want to be. Oh my gosh.
1: No, that's big time. I love that. And and I felt that too, watching the, the movie or his little documentary there I was I was captivated I was like, oh my gosh I need to be there it's really transformational but we'll get into that a little bit later because I know that is a big accomplishment for you but I wanted to relate that to the book so one of my first questions is really just giving everybody a little bit of more context how did you get into finance and like at what age did money start to matter for you <laughs>
0: So I have a little bit of a personal story with that, that I haven't shared on a broadcast, but now's, the, now's a great time, right? There you go. So,
1: Exclusive uh, content right here for
0: everyone. So when my family came here, we came here as refugees in 1994 to America. And it was some years later, like five years later, my grandfather who had owned a mental institution in Belarus was able to finally bring some money over from Belarus here. And he walked into a local bank that had a Russians, the only Russian speaking professional there. And the guy sold him something like nine annuities across a small amount of assets. Now, of course I was like nine years old when this happened. So it's not like I could intervene, right? But. Further on in life, around the time I was 16 or 17, you know, my grandfather's like, hey, you've been working in the United States. You know the tax system, you know what's up. Like, can you just take a look at what I have and tell me what it is? Like, he didn't even understand what it was that he bought. And so I looked at it and some of these things had like guaranteed 1% interest rate return with like guaranteed 2% fees. Um, and so I was like looking at it and I was like, why is this a financial product to start with? Like, why is this allowed? And then when I realized what happened and I like kind of brought it all in together and I had a great, like social studies teacher in high school who happened to know about money that I like went and spoke to, I was like, can you explain what this is and how this could possibly happen? Um, And he was like, look, I'm not going to lie to you. It was basically, you know, and walked me through it and it was basically like your grandfather got screwed by somebody who clearly took advantage of like an old man who didn't understand the finance system. And of course, that was also like personally devastating for my grandfather because he's a brilliant man. You know, he ran a mental institution his whole life you know he's a doctor he helped so many people and so like it was his life savings that he was able to bring here and someone took advantage of that and so my whole entire like life's mission originally started with you know I want to help save one family from that experience Mm. and just do the right thing that's amazing
1: that's how I got it well, the, well I, have, I, this was going to come later in the questions, but I love how you brought it in now because now, did you start your your financial like professionalism in life insurance?
0: Yeah. So I started my very first job was in life insurance. I want, again, kind of a passion for that is like figuring out life insurance and annuities in the industry. I actually got hired to be a marketing associate at the, and that's what I went to school for, marketing at the life insurance company, um, really quickly realized what was happening. It was all just financial product sales. It wasn't like figuring out how to best help people and what they needed and and all of that. It was just like, everybody needs a life insurance policy or an annuity, how do we sell it to them? Um, So really quickly realized it wasn't like my cup of tea. That wasn't where I wanted to land. Um, so went to work for a registered investment advisor, and I got really lucky. One of the advisors that was associated with that insurance company was sort of uh, splitting off um, Mm -hmm. and starting his own um, investment advisory, or RIA, which is where I am now. I'm an RIA um, company, and kind of offered to take me with him.
1: Now, that is a major step right there. That's a great, like, turn of events for you to be able to latch on to somebody that's going to do the RIA method, because that will get into that as well. But ultimately, I just want to give you some context of my life. I started almost the exact same way as you, Veronica, which is phenomenal to just even hear you say that, because when I graduated college in marketing, I worked for a financial firm. (laughs) <laughs> and at the time, I had no idea about finances. You know, I didn't go for that. So I was like, oh, you know what? This, this firm and this guy I know, he recruited me. He said, hey, you know, you can be great for this. You can market it, but then you can also sell it. You have great personality. I was like, okay, sure. I see you guys make a lot of money. And there must be something good coming out of that. And it was all based on annuities and life insurance. And I had no idea. It literally took me a long time, almost two and a half years, no, three years to figure out like, hey, this is not what is conducive to like my self-help and wanting to help people (laughs) I've seen too many turns where it's not going that way so I was like oh my god so I I don't want to get into much more on life insurance but I just wanted to give you the context that I'm like wow when I'm reading your book and you talked about life insurance you actually gave me a perspective on term that I wasn't taught when I was working at the life insurance company. Mm. Can you please just give everyone context? Life insurance has like whole life, universal life, and term, and you advocated for term in the book. And that was kind of, for me, it was like, wait, what? Term, I was
0: Yeah, yeah, so look, I kind of, I'm a, I'll I'll say this, I'm a fundamentalist, right? So Mm. fundamentally, what is life insurance? Life insurance is covering the risk that you will die, potentially, and Right. You will die. But the the key is if you will die early and it will have negative financial consequences for somebody. Right. So fundamentally, when life insurance was originally created, it was the need to replace income. Right. So if you think about the situation where, you know, you have a a couple with two kids, they're both working and they're in the accumulation phase of their life. So, you know, they're trying to like plan for college for their kids. And, you know, basically the sustenance of their family depends on their income. That's only true for a certain amount of time, right? Everyone is accumulating until they stop accumulating and they're retired, right? Mm -hmm. So my whole thing on life insurance is if you can afford to retire, by definition, you likely do not need life insurance unless the reason that you're retiring is like you have a pension, right? And then you need Mm -hmm. life insurance to protect that income stream. But otherwise, like you just need life insurance to 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 solve a need. So for kids, for instance, it's the same thing, right? You need a lot of life insurance probably for the first 10 years of your kid's life because if you needed to replace yourself for taking care of them, like that would be expensive. But you need a lot less life insurance once your kid is like 24 and done with college and some major expenses are out of the way. You'll also need a lot less life insurance by the time you've paid off your mortgage. Like all of these different things, the, when the risk starts to go away and people are less financially dependent on you, then if you passed away, it would be tragic. But financially, everyone around you would be fine. By definition, you do not need life insurance. So, for me, term just addresses that need. It is the quintessential, um, original, fundamental life insurance, right? Whole life and universal life and all of that are just sort of adding bells and whistles. So, whole life and universal life are meant to be term that goes forever whole life. And sometimes they add variable universal life and things like that. They have an investment component that has additional fees and all of that. And for me, that's just not a good way to invest for a number of reasons. The first is that, you know, as many times as we say, like, you should never put all of your eggs in one basket with a stock. Because you go back to Enron and Wells Fargo and all these companies that went bust, why would you put all of your eggs in one basket with one insurance company? Insurance companies go bust too. They also underperform a lot. There are a lot of insurance companies. Yeah. A lot of insurance policies that implode along the way. So the idea that you would give like your life savings over to like any, even if they're amazingly rated insurance company, Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers and Merrill Lynch were amazingly rated until 2008 and 2009 when they imploded, right? It's the same exact concept. Um, So for me, it's just, there's a risk associated with just putting all of your investment eggs into that basket. And I think that, um, Insurance. insurance companies have gotten really creative with the use of life insurance policies. And like I said, I'm a fundamentalist. I believe you cover the risk. And it's really much cheaper that way.
1: Yeah, that is so refreshing to hear. <laughs> because I vividly remember us selling life insurance to 50-year-olds and Barry, expensive
0: life insurance. <laughs> and look, I'll say it this way, it's not that people are trying to do the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. It's that like you if you're fresh out of high- of college and mm-hmm. the only experience you have in the industry is selling these products, you don't know anything else. It's uh. it's not it has nothing to do with the fact that someone's like a really bad person or somebody is trying to screw people over. They just don't understand that there are other options out there. If you think about you, you left two and a half or three years into the industry, you left and you went and did did something else. But you know, as well as I know, there are people who graduated college and have been in that exact company doing that exact Mm -hmm. same thing for like 40 years and Mm -hmm. killing it at sales, but they don't know anything
1: else absolutely right absolutely right okay your book money matters i mean i have it in the kindle version and it absolutely blew my mind of how detailed you were with all your concepts and all the principles and the sectors many different mini sectors in finance and i have a question on the misconception of some of these principles or some of these concepts like which one is the most like alerting to you that you felt as if in your career that you found people just really don't have the like for instance like life insurance could be one but is there another one that you feel like there's like a very common misconception
0: yeah I think a lot of people think cash is safe so a lot of people don't invest um this is constantly a conversation I have especially these days when interest rates are zero it's probably a conversation I had a lot less Or would be having a lot less in like 2005 or four or even six, maybe. But um, these days, when cash earns nothing, and inflation is still a real thing. Things are getting more expensive. Um, everybody who's been to a grocery store this year could probably tell you how things have gotten more expensive, especially with some of the challenges around COVID. Um, inflation is estimated to be about 2% per year. If you're just keeping your money in cash, you lose 2% every year, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it's the same concept as fees eating away at your portfolio, right? Yeah. If It's something like, you know, um, if you invested $500 a month every single month for 30 years, a 2% fee would cost you $250,000. It's the same thing with not investing. Thanks. It's costing you two hundred fifty. <laughs> like <laughs> you put an extra $500 in cash every month and inflation is 2%, it's the exact same thing. That's how much it costs you over 30 years.
1: Wow. Wow. Well, you know, that brings me to the The reference that you make at the end of the book where you give the breakdown of the wonderfully put situation on not investing on like 40 days out of the the year and things of that nature. Can you break that down real quick if you have that capable of like what we're missing if we don't invest in the market, especially just like an
0: index? Yeah, so I don't have the exact uh, numbers in front of me, but I'll tell you this the key to investing is not just to invest it's invest and stay invested um Mm -hmm. and the study that i gave shows just like if you try and time the market more than likely aside from missing hopefully the worst days you'd also miss the best days Mm -hmm. so like if it's there's a study out there that like if you were invested the whole time over the last 20 years you would have gotten a nice average rate of return of about 10 percent per year if you miss just the top 40 days in the market over that entire 20 year period, you would be flat. You would have made no money. And it's just to say like invest and leave it alone. Like pick a strategy and leave it there. It doesn't have to be rocket science. You know, the war- Warren Buffett made a $1 million bet on the S&P 500. Um, just leave it there. Like, that's it. That's all you have to do is just like invest your money, come up with a program and continuously do it and not try and get into like, Oh my God, the news is telling me the market is going to crash. You know, when the news is telling you not to buy into the market, that's the best time to buy into the market. Right. So Right. so just pick a strategy, stick with it. I'm a big fan of like dollar cost averaging. I do it for myself. I'm not, you know, I, I always say like, I eat my own cooking type of thing. Like I'm always, this is the exact strategy I follow. I pick an amount to invest every single month. I invest it like clockwork. I do, you know, there's a certain point where your portfolio has enough in it, uh, sort of as a base level for your lifestyle. I would say once your portfolio covers about Five years worth of your living expenses, mm-hmm. you can start getting more creative and playing. You know, uh, everyone in the financial industry has like that one stock they know is going to yeah. like shoot for the moon. Everybody has that. It's okay to play. Just don't play with an amount that's going to like cost you your life. Like you won't be able to eat yes. if that stock plummets, you know? Right.
1: That's it, a, uh, it relates to a recent, I saw him on Instagram. I think you're a fan of Kevin O'Leary. Am I right? Yeah, and uh, I saw an Instagram post about him. I think he mentions because at this time now we're in a different like investment cycle, I guess, for young generations. Like this Robin Hood finanza that I hear about, like people just throwing butt loads of money in Robin Hood and these kids driving up like Tesla stock. I hear (laughs) it's just it's ridiculous. And I remember reading an Instagram post of Kevin O'Leary saying that day trading is just gambling he said yeah. he meant he, he literally tells he advises do the warren buffett and just invest long term yeah what is that like is that just buying a stock and just letting it sit there or invest like how you mentioned his one million dollar bet in the index right
0: yeah so warren buffett made a one million dollar bet with mutual fund companies that he could invest a um, million dollars into the S&P 500 Standard and Poor's 500 Index, which is just the 500 largest U.S. companies, um, and make more money than any actively managed mutual fund over 10 years, and he won Um, So I would say don't bet against U.S. domestic markets. The (laughs) Warren Buffett real strategy is to buy the companies that you know, understand, know what they do well and know their operations. So if you follow what Berkshire Hathaway really does and the stocks they own, it's it's Apple, you know, there's the story Warren Buffett gets a McGriddle sandwich every morning or whatever. So he owns a lot of McDonald's stock. It's buying the companies you know, it's your household names, right? So like I... I have home depot stock because when we moved every single weekend my husband and i were going to home depot trying to like <laughs> right right, right. Else, right? Um, you know anything that's like that when i got a fitbit watch i got a fit i, I bought fitbit stock mm-hmm. um you know in the beginning of march this year you know my purse this is this was my personal gambling bet i bet with shutdowns that people would be buying more peloton bikes like peloton would take yes. off and it was it was just like an intuitive like everybody's home gyms are closed people need alternatives what are those alternatives how do I buy in so Lululemon has the mirror I you know I have Lululemon stock I also buy Lululemon clothing so right. that's you know it's it's that thing it's just like buying the companies that you know and not trying to like guess with industries you know nothing about so right, if you right. want five household names buy those five household names
1: right. And I've heard of that concept. I love that, you know, buy what you use. I yeah. mean, how many people have every version of like the iPhone to MacBook to oh,
0: desktop yeah.
1: and they just have no idea of like, hey, just sell that and purchase one, not even one now. It's like at $100 right after you can buy a couple shares and just buy yeah. There's an aspect of the book that I found very, like, enlightening. It was the student loans and how, like, far in depth you went into, like, discuss, like talking about student loans. <laughs> and I, I just was because I feel like that was my misconception. You know, I went to college on the assistance of a scholarship because I played basketball. You know, when I got, my family's from Mexico, so I'm the first generation American, and like my family didn't know anything about like how you're, you said you had that in your family, like the tax yeah. system or the loan system. They're like, we don't know what to do. So just make sure you're pretty good at basketball because you like basketball. So I'll help you. Out. <laughs> Seems like you're pretty good at basketball. We'll help you do that. So I ended up going to school for that. So then when I graduated, I wanted to go and to get my master's. But this looming idea of, oh my God, like student loans, like I haven't had to deal with it. So I'm good. But now that I'm trying to I have to deal with it, I'm like, uh, I don't know if I should do that. I don't know where to start. My, my family doesn't even know where to start. So I was like, you know, I just won't do it. But how did you like get so like familiar with student loans? Like, and how does that help your clients or anybody you think of any recent experiences that you've had with that?
0: Is yeah. That- I mean, I got familiar by doing a lot of research. It's not something that's talked about. There's not like a you know, here's your guide to student debt, you know, like debt, right. And the reality is part of that, unfortunately, comes down to our education system in that you know, there's so many systems around the student loan process, Mm -hmm. so many industries around it that they kind of want to make sure people don't really know that much about student loans. (laughs) I'm saying that with a lot of love. Um, Because I think if people realized what, you know, six or seven or 8% interest compounded for 25 years, really amounts to, they just wouldn't go to college. Like it would, especially for degrees that aren't clear cut. Like right. I understand if you know you're definitely gonna be a lawyer, so you go to law school or you definitely know you're gonna be a doctor, so you go to medical school, those are really clear cut. But for people like, I wasn't that decided when I went to college and what I wanted to do, which is why I was a marketing major. It was like, all right, all business, you know? <laughs> um And you know, for people like that, like me, um, I would have never taken out student loans. I paid Mm -hmm. for college out of pocket and worked my way through it, but, um, but most people don't, and I went to a city college in New York city, so it wasn't that expensive. Most people don't have the resources and the time availability to do that. You know, that's, that's tough in its own way. So I think part of it is that if people really understood student loans, they would never get one. Like, that's my honest belief because you take out, you know, when you think about how normal people take out student loans, they take out, you know, oh, this is $40,000 for this year and it's $40,000 for next year. And so by the time you're done with school um, and you need additional money for books and stuff like that, it's $200,000. But if it takes you 25 years to pay that off, you would have paid off over 600,000 on like a 6% loan. And like, I genuinely believe wholeheartedly if people understood that, they would never go. Right, absolutely. I mean, I they remember- They would just me, never yeah. sign up.
1: I remember me, I had a teacher that was in her, I think, late 60s. And I started talking to her, and this was when I, this was a teacher of mine from like, I forget, if, it was my junior college. I went to a junior college and I started working at the financial firm. So we talked about her finances because she had questions for me. I started asking her about her expenses and she's like, yeah, the largest expense I have is still my college debt, like my student debt. I was like, are you kidding me? Like how yeah. long Like, how long ago did, were That's you in college? Great
0: <laughs> example, so most teachers need at least a master's to be a teacher, right? Mm-hmm. To be a full-time mm-hmm. teacher. So let's say you went to undergrad and let's say it wasn't a super expensive undergrad. Let's say it was the average cost of college in the United States, which is about $40,000. That's why I use that number. Um, plus throwing in books and all of that. On top of that, mm-hmm. it's even more, it's like 50, but let's, let's just use 40. And then for your master's, let's say that's $80,000 a year. Cause that's average for master's program. So by the time you're a teacher, you have accumulated close to $350,000 in debt to get there. And you're going to get paid 50 or $60,000 a year, and you still need to live. And so, yeah, of course, it's going to take you that long to pay off your loans. Like, <laughs> And they're accumulating interest this whole way. That 350000 very quickly turns into um, $700,000 or eight hundred or more. I mean, you can use the rule. There's an easy rule in finance. It's the rule of 72, mm. right? So if you earn, if something costs you 7.2% in interest or you earn 7.2% in interest, the money doubles every 10 years. It's just... Mm x times 7.2 right so 72 divided by number of years or divided by the interest rate so if your student loan interest rate is six percent for instance you just divide that into 72 you'll find out how many every x number of years the principal balance will double because they're earning it you're paying they're earning it Right. Yes. And so I really, really think, and, uh, you know, student loan rates have come down a little bit, but still uh, using that rate, 7.2, is not that far off. Um, every 10 years, your loan will double. So if you graduate with $350,000 and you're only paying the bare minimum to keep up with the interest, which a lot of people are, then 10 years from now, you're now your principal is now $700,000 that you owe. And you know what? If you don't pay it off and you keep paying the minimum interest, 10 years after that, it's 1.4 million. My
1: gosh.
0: And people just don't, like, I, this is why I say, I think if people knew, they would never take out student loans.
1: So that is one of the major misconceptions in the book, (laughs) for sure. Absolutely, wow! Oh my gosh, that's just mind-boggling. Yeah, uh,
0: you know, I'm really grateful too that I didn't have to take out loans or anything like that. But you know, so many people do, and we have this—we have such a dependency on these standard colleges and college education. Some schools charging the same as they normally do, and like teaching remotely and all these things. And not that I have anything against college, I loved my college, I love my college experience. But if you had to ask me if I would have gone and paid like 70,000 for a school instead of like the city education I got, I would never say yes. It just doesn't make financial sense.
1: I love that, I love that. And you know, that's, I'm glad you brought that up because I did notice that a lot of, like a lot of universities weren't adjusting tuition in comparison to 2020. And I thought and I think this year was one of the years like the Ivy League schools dropped considerably for like new incoming freshmen. And I'm like, oh, this might be a trend that we see because Mm -hmm. a lot of people are now starting to understand or not understand, but they don't want to go to pay that much money. I feel like The the atmosphere has changed from like what my family was preaching to me from now what like the young kids are getting preached to. It's absolutely different.
0: Yeah, and I think that also has to do with some of the big success we've seen from companies and leaders that haven't graduated from Ivy right? Mark Zuckerberg, yeah. um, you know, you look at um, Steve okay. Jobs, Elon Musk, uh, Tony Robbins. Right. <laughs> the more examples you have of su- non-traditional success, the less important it becomes to have mm. those that traditional background. Although the real adjustment I think will come when firms stop qualifying people based on it.
1: Ooh, I love that. please just give me, some, give me some more info on how you feel about that because that's kind of like one of the <laughs> <first> conversations I've <laughs> To I'll be had.
0: clear, I'm a big fan of traditional education. I'm just not a fan of spending, like taking out huge amounts of debt to get it. I do believe in, you know, I do believe in the value of a four-year degree or a master's program. I don't want to take mm-hmm. away from that, but I think Perfect. there's just the idea that you would pay $70,000 to attend a state school instead of 10,000 a year to attend a city school, like mind-boggling to me like why why people do but i get it you know college experience and all that but i think the really big issue we have is like you can read job descriptions for really basic things like i think i was reading one trying to help out a friend who's looking Mm -hmm. for like an admin role while she's like going to dental school or something and she's And it says like, must have four year, like BBA degree. And I'm like, you're answering phones at a front desk. Like you cannot convince me that you need a four year degree to do that. Um, And then there are, you know, like every job, like you look at IT jobs, even postings on like, unfortunately Google and Facebook and some of these other companies, they ask for a minimum of a four-year bachelor degree as a qualification to get that, as a minimum qualifier to get that job. And while I understand if you're considering two candidates and they have the exact same background, literally exact same experience, one has a four-year degree and one doesn't, you might choose the one with the four-year degree, I still don't think it should be a base qualifier because that deters people who don't have that from applying altogether.
1: I love that. That's absolutely true. Absolutely truth. And I feel like the fear that I see now is kids graduating college and assuming that just my bachelor's won't get me anything. I yeah. need to I need to get a master's. I need to progress just so I can get an entry-level job.
0: Yeah. And that's that's the insane part, is that our and I know that like, it all goes in together, right? Like I think um, at some point, trade schools used to be a big thing in this country. Now we dissuade kids in school from going to trade schools and now trades are suffering because of it. But they're like, they're, we need tra- we need people in trade, like we need yeah. people graduating from trade schools. It's insane. And I think there's just so many other options that are never taught, never explored, never discussed. And it's like this like, You know even in my family it was like it wasn't like are you going to college it was like what college are you going to right Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. um and you know everyone in my family was like you're you need to go to Yale or Harvard (laughs) and so you know it, it for me that wasn't the route but it some people take that to heart. Like when your family, your school, everyone around you and the jobs, like when you start looking at jobs you might be interested in and you're like looking for what the, what qualifies you for it. You're like, oh snap, I need, you know, two master's degrees and 27 years of experience to be like an entry-level IT person. You're like, how am I ever gonna make this happen, you know?
1: ria sorry about that your profession how can you elaborate on you speak about it on the book and i would love to relate it to somebody that's a very influential person to us as we spoke about in the beginning of this podcast Mm -hmm. unshakable from tony robbins gave a massive breakdown and that's kind of one of I i have to admit now reading that book while i was at my financial firm shocked me i'm like wait a minute this firm is abiding by what he's telling people to run away from. <laughs> so I was like, yeah. "Holy moly! What is an RRIA, and why haven't I been informed?" And we mentioned it right now in the podcast. Like, I just didn't know. I just saw this was finance, like this trajectory, yeah. nothing else.
0: Yes. So that's a big misconception is that like every financial advisor is the same, right? So, like, I wear the title of senior financial advisor. And honestly, I wish it was something different because there's a senior financial advisor at Goldman and Morgan Sachs and Merrill Lynch and, you know, Penn Mutual and New York Life and all, and we all do really different things. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, an RIA or registered investment advisor is, somebody who is registered by the Securities and Exchange Commission under the 1940 Advisors Act to be a fiduciary, meaning we are legally obligated to do what's in the best interest of anyone we're talking to at any given time if it relates to our business. So anyone I ever give any tidbit of financial advice to, it has to be in their best interest, meaning I also have no conflicts of interest. I do not take any money, commission, anything from recommending a certain investment. I do not make any money from recommending a certain insurance policy. I do not make any money from telling you to work with accountant A versus accountant B. I end up being choice agnostic, which means and company agnostic, which means Mm -hmm. everything I recommend is because I think that's the best choice for whoever I'm talking to. I have no stake in the game. that's really different from like, I I always use this example because I love them. Fidelity is a really common one. Like everybody knows who Fidelity is. If you look, if you have a retirement plan that's with Fidelity, most of the time the Fidelity plan has Fidelity investment choices and the person advising you works for Fidelity. So Fidelity makes money in a bunch of ways in that situation. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it's a fidelity fund that they earn money off of and charge you fees for in a fidelity plan with a bookkeeper and custodian that has that's fidelity where the fidelity is the bookkeeper and custodian and they get the fees for that and then the advice is given by a fidelity advisor who wants to encourage those fees to keep going oh my gosh and i love fidelity nothing against fidelity everybody does this right you can look at john hancock's policies you can look at all these things they're all like that right so if you get advice it's like the parallel I always make is like you never ask your dentist if your teeth could be better. Like, because they will say yes. Like they will find a way to make your teeth better, right? So (sighs) if you ask an insurance agent, if you need more insurance, they're going to say yes. If you ask a salesperson or a broker at like a Merrill Lynch or something, if Merrill Lynch if they work for Merrill Lynch, they're like, oh, does Merrill Lynch have the best funds? Yeah, of course they do. Like, They may not know any better, but also it's an automatic conflict of interest. Mm. So what I do, I'm completely independent. I have no stake in the game. When I recommend a fund, when we do research on funds, we make any recommendations whatsoever, it's because we believe it's the best option out there for, what, for whoever we're recommending it to, free and clear. Um, And it's literally, I only get paid by my clients for giving good advice. I don't get paid by anybody else. There's nobody else who like, our our company actually has something silly called a no golf ball rule, where we're not even allowed to take anything as small as a golf ball as a gift from anyone, because we want to make sure we stay conflict free. Oh, wow. Um, And it's, it's a culture of making sure, not that we're making the most money as advisors by selling the most product. It's a culture of making sure we do what's in the best interest of our clients. And it changes the discussion internally and the discussion you have externally with your clients.
1: That is major. That needs to be like on billboard. It needs to be advertised (laughs) everywhere. I love the way you broke that down. And that is literally, I think, a massive difference. It literally is going to save a lot of people, (laughs) a lot of heartache and a lot of stress. Thank you. sharing that because that's very important for a lot of people to know and if you're not invested listeners yet or if you're not at the age where you think that you need an advisor eventually you will (laughs) eventually (laughs) you will and make sure it's an ria make sure it's veronica how about that (laughs) thank you okay i I got a question just because this book is a series now money matters is becoming a series am i correct are you working on a third one
0: i am i'm working on a third one yeah so
1: so i've read that this is the first one Correct. I'm reading okay. I didn't want to make sure I didn't accidentally read the second one. What does the second one and the third one compile? Like how much more can you give us? Because I like, honestly that was a lot.
0: So I'm thinking the way I've been thinking about the Money Matter series is really the life journey of somebody through their financial life. So the first book, I kind of covered everything that, you know, I wish I knew as a 17 year old, right? So in my head, I was talking to the 17 year old reader everything like that they fundamentally need to know like filling out w-4 forms and student loans and credit and like planning for your goals and saving and starting to invest the second book is called money matters merging lives merging finances and i have it right here
1: oh yes i'm reading that next absolutely
0: and um and that's About the stage in your life where you're starting to maybe develop a serious relationship with somebody, conversations you will be having around money with that other person, and then how, if you want to, how the merging of finances actually happens. And it's an actual guide. So I give like discussion prompts because I know it's really uncomfortable to talk about money with your significant (laughs) partner. Tell me about um, it. Not for me because oh. of what i what make you a day to day, but for no. most people, for Absolutely. me, it's like, okay, I need to know you have no debt right now. So <laughs> for most, for most, for most people, it's really uncomfortable. So, I really broke it down into like, okay, these are conversations you want to have when you're like getting serious in your relationship. So, you know, like if they need to take care of somebody else, if they're paying child support, if they have an elderly parent that like a portion of their income goes to taking care of, you want to know that upfront because that may affect how you make decisions. Same thing with debt, student loans, et cetera. Next, I talk about like all the conversations you want to have when you're moving in together, right? (sighs) Because like, who's going to, cover what or how that's going to work or the breakdown, especially if there's a discrepancy in the income that the two partners have. Then I talk about everything you want to think about before you actually get married, right? Like sort of premarital planning. Um, And if you need a prenup and how to make those decisions. And then everything that happens after you get married and like when you start entering the phase of planning for kids. So that's sort of book two. Book three that I'm working on is going to be, you know, that middle phase in someone's life. Like you're trying to save for your retirement, you have kids, you're saving for college. Maybe you have elderly parents, things you need to look out for, for them. That's sort of like the, you know, what we call the sandwich generation of financial planning, where you're like taking care of yourself and someone older and someone younger and trying to make it all work. Like how you how you piece that all together and things to look out for and all of that book four is going to be all retirement planning oh, we go. Uh, book four is going to be all retirement planning so all the decisions you make and things you want to have sort of buttoned up before you enter retirement and book five is um estate or legacy planning
1: Branca, that right there brings me to my last question your goals like you killed it writing your goals in here and obviously right there you have goals to make five books and you share it with all of us in this book I'm like hey this is you stated like (laughs) put it out there and I said wow that's (laughs) that's amazing you accomplished most of the things that you put in there am I right or am I wrong
0: yeah you're you're actually right part of it is accountability but you know I don't have an alpaca farm yet um but i will when i'm older it will it's, happen it's close but... It's get there
1: after book 5 i est- estimate you'll be there
0: um but yeah i mean a lot of it is just i want So a lot of finance for a lot of people, and it was like this for me when I first entered the field, it's really overwhelming and finance has a language all on its own. They're sort of like, you know, like we talk about RIA and stuff like that. And people throw these words around that um, people don't just don't know what they mean. And the reality is most people are embarrassed to ask. So Mm, they just don't. So my goal for these books has always been how can I make it so that literally anyone can understand it regardless of background, regardless of anything else. And part of that is sharing who I am, where I came from, what my goals are, and all of that to make it more human, like finance. A lot of people are just like, this is numbers on a spreadsheet. I can't touch this. But when you think about it, okay, they're not just numbers on the spreadsheet. They're the future, they're the future alpaca farm in Long Island, New York. Um, it becomes much more tangible, right? It becomes much more, okay, these are not just like pie in the sky numbers that I'm never going to reach. It's the real, like how I align my resources to make my dreams come true. And anyone can do it. That's that's the outcome that I'm hoping to get.
1: Wow. And so that, that actually, that took over the question I was going to ask. I was going to ask, what did you want readers to receive most from Money Matters? And right there, folks, this is, and simple I you taught me that I learned a lot coming even from a little bit of a financial background I was like whoa here we go this is a breakthrough experience that I'm having right now I appreciate that I appreciate you so much and I think we're coming down to the end here and I wanted to ask you one last question yes and I wish I could talk I, I think I need to we need to have this conversation further after book two after book three I just want to keep talking to you Ronica you're an amazing, I'm in. I'm in you're an amazing conversationalist I love talking
0: Thank to you. you. I'm definitely in.
1: I appreciate you. Now, this last question has to deal with a little bit more of the current pandemic that we're in, and I want to bring some light to it. So, my question was What's one of the moments from this year you least expected to find joy in?
0: Well, it's a good one. I think I least expected to find joy uh, in the major market downturn when everybody was panicking. <laughs> And I found a lot of joy because that was the first time, honestly, in my experience, I started in this field in 2008, 2009. Um, And because I was insurance, I was in insurance. I wasn't really in um, doing what I do now. So this was the first major correction that I was sort of the helping guide for my clients and everybody I came across. And the magic moment for me, honestly, was just how necessary financial education and literacy are. Because the people who had guides, the people who talk, who I had the pleasure of talking with, speaking with and having discussions with and talking through their lives and goals with made great decisions in March. And there were wow. millions more who made really terrible decisions. And yeah. so until I reach all of them, I know that I just have to keep going and making sure that everybody gets the opportunity to create their dreams.
1: And that's an aspect that we didn't touch on. I think we'll touch on in the next conversation we have about how you love to give back to the youth and educate them. I mean, Mike, Corey, yeah. can you just give us a brief kind of <laughs> description, of like what you do and how powerful it is? Because I think this is a very vital aspect to our society that we need.
0: Yeah. So I'm partnered with a few organizations and actually my company is launching a, a, nationwide uh literacy program financial literacy program um where we'll be partnering with organizations around the country to help um sort of distribute financial literacy education there's a lot of amazing nonprofits that do it i've been doing a lot of prior to 2020 honestly a lot of talks at libraries high schools mm-hmm. um colleges now i do them on the web for a lot of nonprofits I have sort of like this kitschy thing that I try to get kids involved in called your financial juice cleanse just to make it a little more interesting. (laughs) Um, And I talk to just sort of like, you know, inventing and reinventing your financial life and foundation and how you build that. And I do it through examples and stories. So it it doesn't become like, painful for anyone. Um, And so my real, you know, I donate hundreds of books to schools um, and, and, you know, anything and everything that I can do to just help move the needle for someone. I honestly think that if people had financial literacy education, we'd have a lot less debt. We'd have a lot more happy people. We'd have a lot more successful people moving the needle up in their lives. I mean, some of this stuff is just like If I knew when I was 14 that I can put $20 into an S&P 500 fund and it wouldn't like, and it would be fine, I would be a lot wealthier today forgetting about everything else, you know? And so some of it is just so basic that I wish um, they would adopt, you know, schools would adopt it. I'm working with a few um, amazing leaders um, in some education systems, some district um, chancellors and things like that. Where we're trying, where we're working to come up with actual financial literacy programs. Right now, just based on how the um, US education system is, it's still all elective. North Carolina finally mandated financial literacy education, but that's the only state that's done it so far. So we're doing a lot of work to try and make that happen nationwide.
1: Wow, big news. I didn't even know that. Thank you so much. I'm gonna to have to do my own investigation on that now. I'm excited for that. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna push it too. I need to get in this field, man, because I got miss I got missed I got the misconception all over me when I was young. So, I would love to have that education, have my kids have the education, all of everyone, every generation to have it.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So, thank you, Veronica. Please give the listeners where they can just like engage with you. You're an amazing person. I want them to find you and just be a part of it. Your Facebook is awesome. I love the stuff you. that you post there. You, you post a lot of lightning things.
0: Thank you. Well, I welcome everyone to, to just reach out to me. I always say this, pick up the phone and call or text me. I know that sounds weird, but My number is 347-445-2452. It's everywhere. You're welcome to literally reach out if I can help you in any way. My email is veronica at veronicacaris.com and my website is veronicacarris.com. So just find me. I'm I'm happy to connect. I'm happy to help. If there's anything I can do um, to give you that two millimeter shift um, so you can change your life, I'm happy to do it.
1: That's amazing. Appreciate (laughs) you for that everyone you heard it here contact her <laughs> i definitely will contact her <laughs> after Thanks. this show because i need to talk to her more but no i appreciate you veronica thank you so much for taking this morning with us it's been a pleasure and i'll let thank you, you so sign much. off now thank you
0: definitely. so much pleasure to be yes here.
1: everyone get money matters it's out on amazon kindle and you can even audible it right
0: yeah you can sure audible it. it it's actually everywhere books are sold both of them i keep them handy so there you go um they're everywhere books are sold barnes and noble your local bookstore your library they're they're hanging out there so oh yes
1: oh yes we're going to be here folks shelf life will be here for volume two three four five six seven and ten we're gonna go all the way (laughs) thank you veronica i appreciate you so much